Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 15th of May, Andrew Bunt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andrew looked at the doctrine of salvation. Andrew is one of the teaching pastors at King's Church Hastings and is a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Hi everyone, it's really nice to be with you. It is nice in some ways to have it easier, although I do miss travelling the country. Uh, at this point, I quite like a long journey. Hopefully it's not too uh, far away. That day will come in the, the nearish future. And uh, I'm going to dive straight into it because, as Andy says, we've got lots to do today. There is a method behind the um, radical choice of uh, or reason behind the radical choice of scripting the things. Hopefully, talk about the doctrine first gives us some um, uh, understanding of concepts, which will help us to understand some of the complexity of Romans. So, see, this first session is getting some kind of structure in place, understanding some key concepts, and then in various places and various ways, we'll see those um, in action in Romans that hopefully will be helpful. So the doctrine of salvation, we're going to quickly look at what salvation is, and then we're going to look at three different, I guess, kind of lenses on salvation, aspects of or way of looking at it. So first of all, just the, the more basic question of what is salvation? Salvation is about being saved, it's about rescuing, it's about deliverance, and it's being saved from something, but also for something. So there's kind of two sides and two things going on. If you look at the Bible, you see the language of salvation applied to a very broad range of things. You can be saved from all manner of things, ranging from illness to other nations, to enemies or slavery or oppression. But primarily, when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, we're talking about being saved from, uh, rescued, delivered from sin, both its power and the punishment that we deserve from it. And in a sense, most of the other things that the Bible talks about as being saved from are all outworkings in some way of the effect of sin on the world. So ultimately, salvation is from sin. And also salvation is for something. It's for relationship with God. It's not just that we're saved from sins. We can then kind of go about on our own. Actually, we're welcomed into relationship. There's real purpose, not just to escape something, but actually to come into something life-giving. The purpose is that we get to enter into a relationship with God, which obviously sin had separated us from. And in the Bible, we're presented or we're shown very clearly salvation is always the work of God. It's never the work of us. It's always the gift of God given to humanity. That's a kind of really important line in the sand for a biblical understanding. And so salvation is ultimately by God. So salvation, we can say, is from God, in a sense, because it's from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. Salvation is to God. It takes us to God. It uh, restores us to a relationship with him. And salvation is by God in the giving of his son. So every step and every aspect of salvation, and it is God who is at work and salvation relates to God. Which is why the first uh, lens we'll use to talk about salvation is salvation and God. Because actually the doctrines of salvation and the doctrine of God are kind of quite interlinked because salvation is so much rooted in who God is. That's such a, a key thing. One thing there is that salvation is a defining feature of the living God, of the God of the Bible. One of the things the Bible says kind of marks out Yahweh, the living God, the God of the Bible as the real God is the fact that he is the one who saves. And you get this contrast between the God who is really and exists and who saves and the false idols who can't save, especially in the, the prophets, you get that quite a lot. One example would be Isaiah 43, what we call second Isaiah, Isaiah 40 um, onwards, which a lot of that is about the contest between Yahweh and the so-called gods. And God showing and demonstrating the fact that he is the one and only true living God. In Isaiah 43, he says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. I declared and saved and proclaimed and there was no, when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, I am God. As God declares that he is the only true living God, it's his identity as saviour, which is one of the central things. 
And one of the accusations often brought against the so-called gods, the idols that the people made, is the fact that they can't save. One of the things that proves they're not really gods is they are unable to save. Again, Isaiah, that same kind of section of Isaiah, Isaiah 46. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. He's talking about making an idol you're going to worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. He's saying you might make an idol and you can cry to it as much as you like. It's not going to save you. It's not a real god. Well, Jeremiah says a similar thing, Jeremiah 2. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, so Judah. He's mocking them. You've got all these gods. Well, why aren't they saving you? Why aren't they rescuing you? Because they're not real gods. Salvation is a defining feature of the living God. And in fact, it's so much what God does that the Bible talks about God being salvation. So much what he does is actually kind of becomes who he is. God is salvation. You see that, for example, in Exodus 15, the kind of great song of victory after the people being rescued out of Egypt. God's uh, kind of act of salvation in the Exodus, where they sing, the Lord is my strength and my song. and He's become my salvation. He is my salvation. Well, the psalmists often talk about God as my salvation, God, our salvation. It's so much who he is. It can be said that he is actually salvation. So salvation is a defining feature of who God is. Then also salvation flows from and reveals God's character. God always saves because of who he is, not because of who we are. God is a just judge. He rightly, because he's righteous, because he's just, and we'll talk about this more later, he has to judge and punish sin. The right thing for God to do, the requirement on God, is for him to judge and to punish sin. There's no comparable obligation. There's no duty for him to save. There's nothing meaning he has to save, actually. That's not required for justice. But because of who God is, he longs to save. He loves to save. And that famous description that's repeated in different ways, often throughout the Old Testament, God is a God who's merciful and gracious. That's who he is at the core of his being. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, as Nehemiah puts it, I love it when he uh, prays at the dedication of the temple, he talks about God being ready to forgive. He's eager to forgive. At the core of God's heart, he's a God who wants to save because he's gracious and merciful. And so God's acts of salvation flow out of a a, a heart longing to express love and mercy and grace and goodness. And salvation is always rooted in who God is and in what he does. It's never rooted in what we do. If you read all through the scriptures, you find salvation, God's acts of salvation are always an outworking of who he is. They're always based on what he does. They're never because of something that we do or who we are. Deuteronomy 7 is a wonderful example of that. This is Moses talking to the assembled Israelites as they are about to enter into the promised land. And he's reminding them of the exodus that happened to the previous generation. He's telling the uh, Deuteronomy generation, which is generation two, as it were, the first lot died out in the wilderness. It's the second generation. He's saying that was your story, too. It's like you were there, too. That was your act of salvation, too. And he says to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the, because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He says, guys, God has picked you and he's set your love on you. He's chosen you. He's rescued you. But that wasn't because you were impressive and you were great in number. Actually, he loves you. He says, because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. His love is rooted purely in his love, not anything about you. And because he's keeping the oath he swore to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, because of his faithfulness to his promises. It's all rooted in him and what he does. Or you go to um, Ephesians 2, where we talk this uh, coming from death to life. We read about God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. It's because of his mercy, it's because of his love for us that we are made alive even when we are dead in our sins. Salvation is always rooted in who God is and what he does. 
And because of these things, salvation shows us, or God's acts of salvation show us what he is really like. Salvation is a, an overflow, an outworking of the heart of God, means that his salvation acts reveal to us something of what he is like. And so we can most clearly see who God is and we see how he acts in salvation. And supremely, that's the case. We see who God really is and we see how he's acted, how he's treated us in the sending of his son. The Apostle John very much makes that point in his first letter in chapter four. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How is God's love kind of published to the world, demonstrated to the world? It's in the sending of his son. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We see the, uh, the heart of God. We get to know God's character through seeing how he acts in his acts of salvation. And the final key thing on salvation and God is the ultimate purpose of salvation. We're saved for something, that's a purpose, but the ultimate purpose of all of God's acts of salvation is that he might bring glory to himself. Because the acts of salvation that God enacts reveal his heart and reveal his character, they're designed to help us to see how gloriously good God is, how deserving of worship he is. They're designed to draw us to glorify and to worship God. Ultimately, God saves in order to show who he is so he might receive the glory that is worthy, uh, that is due to his name. You see that in places like um, Exodus, when, uh, Mo when God talks to Moses about what he's going to do in overthrowing Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It's all about showing his glory. It's all about people knowing that he is the true God. Well, you see it in that opening hymn in Ephesians 1, this kind of hymn of praise about all the blessings, every spiritual blessing that we've received in Christ Jesus. And there's this repeated refrain of it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. The reason God adopts and redeems and does all these things is to the praise of his glorious grace so that he might be praised for his grace. So the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of God are kind of intertwined in a sense because salvation so much flows from who God is. That's one lens in which we can understand this topic. I mean, another one which I think is really important is salvation and the Bible story. Because it's very easy when we come to salvation just to think, in a sense, vertically, to think us as an individual and God. How are we saved? How does this impact us? And that's really important. And we will come back to that as a substantial part of this session. But actually, the whole Bible story is the story of God's mission to save. It's all part of, all fits together as God's plan to enact salvation, to demonstrate his heart, to bring glory to himself. It's really important, I think, for us to remember that kind of horizontal understanding of things as well as the vertical. And we'll just kind of run through that story quickly. Just for time, I won't do too much detail, but the notes might give you a bit more detail of how actually the whole Bible story is a story of salvation. Because, of course, the Bible story starts with a plan, plan A, creation, how things are meant to be. And that is us in relationship with God. But we know very quickly it goes wrong. Everything gets destroyed. We, as humanity, rebel against him. And there has to be judgment. And a key part of that judgment is that separation from God, that entry of death into the world. And it's from that point that God starts his mission of salvation, promised right there in Genesis 3, is the promise of enmity, of kind of a hostility between the seed of the women and the seed of the serpent. And the promise that one day the women, the seed of the women, will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Right there, there's a promise. And the whole rest of the story is the outworking of this salvation. So even at the very moment that humanity have first rejected God, we see his heart of grace and mercy, his desire to save coming through. And then that comes through in kind of the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham actually is the promise to restore what's being lost. It's a promise of coming salvation. This is the, the family through whom salvation is going to come to them. But then also they will bless all the families of the world. They then become the people who are enslaved in Egypt. And the exodus from Egypt, that uh, great rescue out of Egypt, the plague, the crossing of the Red Sea, is kind of the foundational salvation event in the Old Testament and, in a sense, in the Bible. 
uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament will become a picture for salvation, the way that God does it, what God loves to do, rescuing people out of one place, or out of one situation. But then the rest of the Old Testament kind of shows us that even though God has saved the people, he's made this covenant with them at Sinai where they need to keep his laws, continue to experience his blessings. So not to be saved, notice, they're already being saved from slavery, but to live under God's blessing, they need to keep the law in the covenant made of Moses. But actually the whole of the Old Testament just shows they are unable to do that. Human sinful hearts are unable to keep God's law, unable to stay under God's blessing in that way. So the prophets come bringing the warning of judgment because the people are failing to live God's way, but also being a promise of a, uh, another level of salvation, a deeper salvation where even the heart will be changed and where sins will be totally dealt with. And then that, of course, is what happens in the coming of Christ, that he deals with our sins completely in his sacrificial death so that God can save and can still be just. But also he allows us to be reborn, to be given uh, new hearts, hearts uh, filled with his Holy Spirit. So we might now seek to live his way. And in this age we live in, the church age, is the time when the message of salvation is going out. The very purpose of this time is that there would be time for people to hear the offer of salvation from God and to respond to it. And all that will lead us to the end of the story when salvation comes in its fullness, in a sense, when everything that Jesus has, has won on the cross becomes fully uh, enacted, fully consummated in the new creation. And that salvation from and then to will kind of be experienced in its fullness. We'll be in perfect relationship with God in a new creation. God and man dwelling together again. So even that quick whistle-stop tour, we can see that the whole thread, the whole flow of the Bible story is about salvation. It's God's uh, mission, his plan, his determination to save a people, and we are in that story. And a lot of what we'll talk today is kind of the verse, it is the us and God, but it's, it's helpful to remember, and important, I think, to remember that bigger context. And that then leads us, though, to that third lens, the third way of thinking about salvation as his doctrine is salvation and the individual in a sense it is how do we as individuals receive salvation what does salvation look like for us how does all of that actually happen when we ask that question theologians often talk about there being a, a kind of a an, well, a, a list of blessings in this what's called the ordo salutis an order of salvation well, the order isn't so much chronological always, it's more kind of a rational kind of what makes sense, how things go together. That there are so many different aspects of salvation. Because actually, if you opened a, a systematic theology or a, a summary of Christian theology, you probably won't find a chapter on salvation. You'll find a whole section with lots of different chapters about all these different things, which is one of the reasons this morning is a big task, because we are covering a whole whack, basically, of systematics. And it's these different elements of salvation, which in some way actually are um, uh, kind of summarized in Romans, where the letter will come to. In Romans 8 gives us a bit of a kind of proto form of this order of salvation, where Paul talks about the different things that are guaranteed to those whom God saves. He says those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see how he's saying, actually, if you get one, you get this one and this one and this one. They all kind of add up together. And the, the list of these uh, elements of salvation kind of slightly varies between different theologians. And the order is slightly debated. But there's a kind of common, uh, uh, fairly standard kind of way of looking at it, which is that it starts with election. God choosing people to be saved, then calling. So God speaks, not just in a sense in a kind of uh, audible intellectual way, but God speaks to the head and to the heart, takes hold of a heart through a call, which brings about a response. There's regeneration, which is the bringing of a new life into a heart so we can respond to God. There's conversion, which is our part where we respond to that call and to that regeneration in faith and in repentance. And there's justification, which is about God declaring us to be in a right legal standing with him, followed by adoption, us being welcomed into the family of God as sons and daughters of God. 
And then also sanctification, which is the ongoing process of being transformed to be more like God, of being made holy. And finally, glorification, being given a resurrection body in the new creation. And this morning, we're going to talk a bit about the first six of those elements, because the other two, I think you'll deal with in, uh, in different sessions, sanctification, glorification, you'll come to it at different points over School of Theology. But we're going to spend some time at each one of those six. But before we do that, we're going to go to breakout rooms and in your notes you'll find there are four true or false statements i shall see if i can find them and put them in the chat as well i just want you to take a few minutes just to discuss together whether you think these statements are true or whether they're false you'll have uh, kind of a five minutes to do that we'll come back and then we're going to use a zoom poll which is one of my favorite things uh we'd have to go on zoom to see what we think and so we'll get a feel across the room for what we think of whether these statements are true or false and hopefully what follows will bring some answers to the um polls aren't quite working so what we're going to do is just to gauge across the room whether we think these things are true or false so we're going to use the zoom reactions which are on a laptop will be in the bottom menu i think if you're on an ipad or a phone they're kind of in the more menu on the top right or something you might have a quick look see if you can find reactions this means your response is not anonymous which it would have been in the poll but no one is going to judge you i'm sure there'll be a diversity of answers and uh, by the end we will be well we may all be on the same page you may disagree with me or may not be and that's fine so let's use the thumbs up reaction if we think it's uh, true and uh, just not use a reaction if you think it's false. So statement number one is salvation starts with the individual's choice to trust in Jesus. Put a thumb up reaction or any reaction if you think that that one is true and leave it blank if you think it's false. Okay, a diversity there. Majority false, but a few true. Second one, so this reset is justification is about God infusing righteousness into us so that we can live increasingly righteous lives. Put a reaction up if you think it's true. Again, a mixture, more false than true, but some saying true. Okay, okay. Uh, an individual is born again when they respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. Thumbs up for true. Or oh, we get more thumbs up. Oh, wow. Lots of thumbs up. Okay, so almost near universal on um, um, true. I'm sorry, there. Andrew. I keep, I keep thinking, I'm listening to it. I'm thinking, is this a trick question? Is this a trick question? <laughs> This is a trick question. It sounds right. Is it a trick? So, yeah, I think. <laughs> Number three is a trick question. Uh, <laughs> the individual, uh, the, sorry, the way an individual is saved in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are completely different. Thumbs up for true. Okay, mostly false, but some true. Okay, I think all of those are false. Uh, even number three, which is the controversial one, which is a trick question. Uh, so we'll come to that when we get to regeneration. And do ask me if I don't make it clear at that point. <laughs> Let's begin to work through the six steps of the order of observation, starting with one of the most complex and controversial, starting with election. Election we can define as God elects some people to be saved, not based in anything on anything in them, but based on his free choice. And in this way, salvation starts completely and freely with God, with his free choice, his own decision to save some people, all as we said, because of his love, what's in him, not because of anything in us. When we get to Romans 9 to 11, we'll see this is a, a big theme there, actually. Paul is wrestling with God's election, but also with Israel's unbelief, their failure to trust in what God has said. And he's really clear that, that people turn to Jesus, people respond to the gospel because of a prior choice that God has made. He gives some examples. He talks in Romans 9 about Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis, and how God chooses the younger of them, chooses Jacob to be the, the prominent one, even though actually he was the younger, which isn't the usual way things worked. And even though they hadn't even yet been born, before they're even born, God tells um, Rebekah that Jacob will be the one who uh, takes priority in a sense, who the uh, promise goes through, the line the promise goes through. Um, uh, Romans 11, Paul, again, wrestling of Israel's unbelief, he says, what's happened? Why is it that Israel haven't believed in the Messiah now that he's come to them? Paul says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. It's the election, the, the choosing, which means they obtained it. You see elsewhere in Paul as well, Ephesians 1, blessed be God, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption. He predetermined that we would be adopting, adopted. Or in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul is explaining how the Thessalonians can be confident that God has chosen to them, chosen them, and it's because they responded to the gospel. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know it? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the evidence that God has chosen you is the fact that you have responded to the gospel. It's come to you in power. You see elsewhere, it's not just in Paul, you see it in uh, Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And we're told when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life were saved. Different language, but same concept, appointed, God appointed them to that. Peter, in his first letter, talks about the exiles being elect, talks about them being a chosen race. And in Revelation, John the Apostle, he talks in Revelation 13 about the beast being given authority to rule over the earth, that everyone on the earth worships it. Everyone, he says, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain, i.e. some people have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb. I think there's a very clear message in the New Testament that election is the start of salvation. But of course, we know there are difficulties to that. There are questions that will be even in our heads right now and kind of objections people bring to that. One objection very commonly brought to it is, well, doesn't this uh, kind of destroy human free will? How can we have free will to choose to follow Jesus if actually it's all based on a choice that God has made? And that's a very complex question, which gets or which is linked to the broader question of God's sovereignty, of God's controlling his rule over the world and the way that links in with human freedom. But I think we have to allow our understanding of freedom, of the um, extent of freedom and the form of freedom we have to be defined by scripture. And often I think the problem we have is we want to come with a kind of a, 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 an idea of freedom based on philosophy and based on modern thought, rather than allowing the Bible to explain to us what does human freedom look like. Because scripture does suggest that we make very real choices. And those real choices have real consequences and that we get held responsible for those consequences. That's why we are judged for sin. They're choices that we make and we are held responsible for, their, um, for the consequences of them. But that doesn't mean that God isn't behind those choices. And actually scripture very clearly indicates that God is behind those choices. He controls or he uh, directs things to such an extent that even our desires, so even things that lead us to make choices are shaped by him. So it's not that we sometimes find ourselves doing things thinking, I made no choice to do that. Someone has controlled me like a puppet and I was just made to do that. That's not how it is. We do things and we choose to do them. But even our own choices, scripture seems to teach us, are directed by God because God shapes even our deepest desires. It's got a much more uh, foundational thing, a much more um, yeah, foundational kind of level. And so theologians talk about what's a compatibilist understanding. The idea that God's sovereign control of absolutely everything that happens is compatible with human freedom and human responsibility. So God works at that deep level to direct all things. And to some extent, that's a mystery or something very hard for us to understand. How do those things fit together? But I do think both things are taught in Scripture. God is sovereign in control of all things, and yet we make real choices that we are culpable for. And that seems to be the way that the two go through. Or another objection or another question that people might um, raise, and we'll come and we'll do a bit of Q&A later so we can discuss these things further, is that the Bible says that God desires all people to be saved, which of course it does. 1 Timothy says that to Peter indicates similar things. How could it be that God can say he desires all people to be saved, but also he has chosen some and not all to receive salvation? Well, everyone agrees that God could save everyone. But scripture does seem to clearly indicate he doesn't, he's not going to. So how do those three things go together? How do we reconcile those? How could it be that God wants all people to be saved and yet he's chosen that's not going to be the reality? And that there are kind of two potential answers, ways to reconcile that. One is just say, well, God is more concerned with preserving human free will than he is with saving everyone. Or that it was necessary for God to preserve human free will. And so he can't control whether or not all people are saved. 
I think there are problems with that based on what we just said about the Bible's understanding of God's sovereignty of human freedom. The second option is the explanation for this surprising thing of events is that, well, that there is some other explanation and that probably is God's own glory. That God is primarily concerned, actually, or supremely concerned and rightly concerned because he is God with his glory. And so he will do whatever brings most glory to him. And he knows what that is. And that may be the explanation as to why some are saved and not all. And actually, when we get to Romans 9, I think we'll see Paul kind of pretty much saying that. I think what he is saying is that the reason that some are elect and some are not is because it does bring more glory to God. And we'll be able to explore that um, a bit when we get there. And that would certainly fit with a very strong biblical theme of God's concern for his glory, that God, everything he does is for his glory. Salvation is to demonstrate his glory when actually there's barely any real kind of uh, biblical theme about human freedom, human culpability for our choices. Definitely human freedom, actually just not so much as a very modern uh, post enlightenment concern, not really something uh, particularly prominent there in the Bible. And that, of course, then leads us questions about what about reprobation, as in not being chosen? Does this mean that God chooses some people not to be saved? If some are ordained to be saved, are some ordained not to be saved? Scripture does seem to indicate that some are ordained not to be saved, but it doesn't say, or it's not presented in the same way that election to salvation is saved is presented there is a an unequal or a, a different way that it's presented some new testament evidence first evidence that it does seem to be that there's a, a reality to reprobation romans 9 22 what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured of much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction paul seems to say there are some prepared for destruction or um uh, Romans eleven seven. the elect obtained it, obtained salvation, the rest were hardened. That sounds like an active thing that has happened and that has caused the hardening. So does Paul, Peter as well. Peter, um, in 1 Peter 2, he's talking about those who aren't saved. He says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So it's quite clear cut. There's a, a destined to that response of disobeying the word, of not responding to the gospel. Or a Jude 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. It's a designation for condemnation. And we rightly, understandably, find this difficult, but it does seem to be the clear teaching of Scripture. But what's really important is Scripture talks in very different ways, different language uh, about uh, reprobation, this being destined for not being saved, and it does to election. Salvation, we know, is an act of God. He elects, he saves, all out of his grace, utterly unrelated to our actions. It's all rooted in him, not rooted in us. Actually, condemnation is always in scripture rooted in the choice to disregard or to um, rebel against God. It's always our culpability for our sin. We receive, if we receive condemnation, it's because of our sin, because we have turned against God. The one Peter one there is a good example. Yes, they're destined to do this, but it's because they disobey the word. There is human culpability. It's human um, uh, uh, guilt lying behind it. It's also important that whereas with election, there's great rejoicing over the great truth of election. The Bible never rejoices over the reality of the destruction of the wicked. And places like Ezekiel 33 are really clear. God does not take delight in actually the fact that anyone is judged, anyone is condemned, anyone is under sin. And there seems to be a, a kind of an asymmetrical relationship in the way that scripture talks about election and reprobation. God doesn't choose people to be condemned in the same way he chooses people and kind of picks people out of the crowd to be saved. So although there is a sense of reprobation being a reality, actually, what theologians sometimes call double predestination, of there's a group God has chosen to be saved, a group he's chosen to be condemned, doesn't really, I think, reflect how scripture talks about it. That's just not as, it's not as clear cut as that. It's not a like for like thing, really. It doesn't work in the same way. Then we could just say, well, how should we view election? Often we find it very uncomfortable. We might think it's just something that's too confusing to understand, push it away. You might find it's emotionally too difficult and push it away. What's striking is the New Testament views it really very positively. It believes it's a good thing for us. It sees it as a reason to worship. 
One of the reasons we worship is because of the glory, as the Bible seems to present it, of election. Again, that kind of hymn of praise in Ephesians 1 would be an example. We, um, we praise him, we bless God because of the fact he's, he's predestined us for adoption. He's chosen us in love. It's also deemed to be a reason for confidence. Because we know our salvation starts not with us making a choice, but with God choosing us, we can be confident that God will uh, do his good and he'll save us on the final day. If our salvation is based on us making a good choice, that's a lot of pressure on us to kind of keep up with that good choice and make sure we really have made it. Actually, if our salvation is based on that God has elected us to salvation, that's a firm foundation. He's going to complete what he started, even if we sometimes feel like we couldn't do that. There's wonderful confidence that comes with election. And there's fuel for mission. People might think this makes us lazy in mission and well, actually, if it's what God does, well, then kind of why should we do anything? But actually, it makes our role in mission, in a sense, simpler and gives us wonderful confidence. Our role is to proclaim what is true, and it's God's role to work in hearts and to save. We proclaim knowing that some people will respond because God is gracious and merciful. He loves to save and has elected some people to salvation. So in Acts 18, for example, Paul is told by God that there are many people in the city whom he has still got to save, whom he has elected. And so Paul stays around. He doesn't think, oh, that's all right. They'll get in there. I can just leave them. I can go elsewhere. He thinks, no, if there are people here whom God has chosen, I must preach the gospel. It fuels him into mission because he knows that as he preaches the gospel, some people will respond to him in that. Let's just pause there, because that is one of the most difficult elements of what we'll uh, look at today. Difficult intellectually, difficult emotionally. Just see if there are any quick questions. Just feel free to just unmute yourself and just to uh, grab my attention that way if there are. It may not be, which is fine. Or maybe you're kind of musing and we'll have some opportunity later to always come back to it later if it's percolating through. But let's quickly do a few other bits before taking a break. Yeah, Andy, was that a question? Um yeah i still have trouble getting my head around the fact that the pe certain people are chosen for salvation but then the other people aren't chosen for reprobation because surely but i mean maybe i'm just trying to argue this from logic but it's they're the remainder so haven't they been chosen for that as well well <laughs> but maybe the, the remainder thing is helpful as you know if you so if you have um a group of 10 people or let's not know people, 10 sweets, you choose four, and there's six left. You've chosen the others, you've left the others. That might, that might be a difference, that's one, no. So, so in a sense, my view is the Bible talks about asymmetrically, asymmetrically. Why is that? How is that? It's also the case, of course, that all of us deserve judgment. Judgment because we've all sinned. And so that's of our own doing. And so in that sense, it, well, maybe the sweet thing is, but in that sense, it's people are left to judgment. And in that way appointed to it, it's not that God picks out the crowd, you, you and you are going to go to judgment. Actually, it's all of us deserve judgment. That is absolutely mm -hmm. just that all of us should have that. But actually, amazingly, God goes, you, you and you, I'm going to rescue to show how gracious and merciful I am. And others are left. I, I think that's why the Bible sees it asymmetrically. Um, because, yeah, the base, the default, I guess, isn't it? The default is condemnation. Maybe it's being left in that state, which is the difference mm. thing yeah that's really helpful thank you sorry can i just follow up that question with another yeah, question um sorry i will put my video on so you can see me <laughs> oh. um so that just sort of brought to mind because there is that passage in romans and i can't remember where it is off the top of my head where he talks about how god has sort of designated different vessels for different things and you almost get through, do you know the bit that I'm talking about? Yeah, Romans 9, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there almost is that sense that he has created certain vessels for destruction. <clears throat> and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to argue for that, because I don't, you know, but it is, that sort of would imply that he has selected people. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, but I think it is, it's nuanced is I guess, um, I guess a way of putting it, uh, oh, wrong but completely. Is this a passage where he talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened? Is that, is that the one you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, it's Romans 9. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to it later, certainly. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I yeah. mean, you're right, the word prepared, yeah, yeah. 
And one question could be, who does the preparing? Have we prepared ourselves for destruction by our own sinfulness? I don't know. But I think you're right. The line, you're rightly picking up, the line is slim. I think, I think the point, the reason I'm nervous about the language of double predestination yeah. is just the Bible just doesn't talk about preparation the same way it does. No, I guess it's within the whole context of everything else. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe even if, yeah, maybe I'll just try to make that point of there's an, maybe there's an imbalance in the way God talks rather than asymmetricality. Maybe it is choice on both sides, but there's just an imbalance. And the risk of double predestination it begins to sound like God gleefully chooses seed to be saved and gleefully chooses those who are punished. Mm. That's just not how scripture presents it at all. Uh, God no. takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. So maintaining some level of difference just is important. I think in some way. Okay, thanks uh, very much. Relevant passage, well done for those that. Let's quickly do a couple other bits and then we'll take a break. Calling and regeneration we can do quite quickly. Calling, God works in someone's heart as they hear the gospel, so as they respond in repentance and faith. In that bit I read from Romans 8 earlier, the chain of different things in salvation, you'll notice that those who are called are also justified which seems to apply everyone who is called is justified, which means this can't just be a general proclamation of the gospel. There must be something in this call that evokes a response. Something happens when this call comes. So theologians uh, distinguish between the general call, which is the gospel being proclaimed. It's just audibly heard as words as we announce the gospel to people. But then the effectual call, a call which actually affects something. It does something in a heart. So the effectual call is when the gospel is proclaimed and God calls a heart in the sense of he evokes the response. So it's not like calling a dog in the park who may or may not return to you when you call to it. It's a call which actually does something. In fact, maybe it's not like calling a dog who may return to you. It's like having one of those retractable dog leads where you press the button and pull the string and the dog is going to come back to you. I never thought that before, but it's kind of that thing. That call is going to do something. And the best example of this, I love this, is in... Acts 16, Paul is preaching in the city of Philippi. And um, Luke writes, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who is a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I think the idea of opening her heart to pay attention is a nice picture of the effectual cause. These words come, God does something in the heart to actually cause her, actually draws her to him. And then a similar thing is regeneration. God uses or God causes a person to be born again, receiving new spiritual life such that they will turn to God for salvation. We know that until God acts, we are dead in our sins. And if we're dead, we're unable to respond. The courts cannot respond to anything. Actually, God needs to act in us, needs to bring new life to us into our hearts before we can actually respond. This is why I think statement three is actually false. Technically speaking, being born again must proceed, even if only fractionally, saving faith and repentance, because we would not be interested in not be able to respond in saving faith and repentance if God had not, we had not been born again. I wonder sometimes the scripture uses the language of um, new life for what does follow faith and repentance. But certainly regeneration is a reality as well. And I think it's what Jesus is talking about in John 3 and Nicodemus, this whole thing of being born again or being born from above, when Nicodemus doesn't understand how can it be that we can be born again. And it's a wordplay of being born above. And Jesus says no one can uh, see the kingdom of heaven, no one can enter the kingdom if they're not born again by the Spirit. And he talks about the Spirit being like the wind. And he says, wind, you can't see it but you know it's there by its actions. You see the, the leaves moving, the trees are swaying in the wind. That proves that the wind is there. He says in the same way, the evidence of the spirit working, you don't see it working, but you know he's been at work when something happens and when new life comes. When someone responds to the gospel, we know the gospel, we know the spirit has been at work and has brought new birth into that heart. So the regeneration is something God does. Again, all of these things start actually with God. It's God who enacts salvation, who he acts to prepare a heart so that we can then um, respond to him in salvation in faith. And so effectual calling and regeneration are very similar things. They're both things of how God works in a heart to enable us to um, respond to him in conversion, which is what we'll come to next. But we will take a quick break at this point to reach about the hour point so let's take a break of just under 10 minutes and be back oh, perfect be back at 10 past 
I've sent a couple of questions in the chat. I'll quickly just try and look at the first one from Lizzie, which I think is kind of asking, how does prayer in evangelism fitting, given what we said, maybe especially about election and stuff, which I think really is just the bigger question of how does prayer fitting in the reality of God's sovereignty? If the Bible says that, which I think it does, uh, it's a very high view of God's sovereignty, of God actually ultimately controls all things, nothing happens outside of God's dictates, how does prayer work? The answer is we don't know, but it does. God has told us that he sovereignly ordains all things, but also told us to pray and told us that our prayers make a difference, told us things don't happen because we don't pray. We don't know how the two together, but they do. So the simple answer is we don't know how it works, but absolutely uh, prayer is a big part of mission and evangelism. And we just to trust that our prayers make a difference because God does have. Presumably the way being that God also ordained our prayers and he ordains the prayers that he uses to move him to do things presumably but um even however the mystery is resolved i think the outwork in there is the same the second one from Anne, i think is making the point of the effectual how is the effectual call in context where people don't hear the gospel is that right great yeah which is a really helpful clarification i mean the effectual call we we instantly think of a call as in someone saying something it doesn't have to be that it can also be God's directly calling in the heart so the examples you give are wonderful examples I think of the effectual call coming to a heart those people who cry out to Jesus after a dream or um, just kind of knowing they need salvation knowing being aware of the guilt and condemnation they carry that is evidence of that God has already worked in their hearts that call has in that sense come so it's a helpful clarification that the effectual call doesn't only happen through the general call of us proclaiming the gospel. Actually, it's a work of God, of God calling a heart, even if kind of not through normal words. Let's keep moving along. I know we're moving at quite a pace on very big, complex stuff. I always think with these sessions, hopefully they give a, uh, a broad understanding, a bit of a framework. And then, you know, you've then got something to go away. And if you want to look into different things in more detail, there are, I mean, there are resources actually on the notes and different things that will help you to do that. And Romans will help as well. So those will get earthed a bit as we go through Romans. We've talked about a few first steps in the order of salvation, all of which are, in a sense, not involving us at all. It's all God acting. And now with conversion, we come to the point where we get involved. On the basis of God's election and what God has done in our heart through uh, the effectual call and through regeneration, comes conversion which is our willing response to all of this uh, in repentance and in faith that's the, what happens in us uh, in our choice at that point and both sides that are important repentance and faith are kind of two sides of the same coin and both very important and both i think have three different elements to them they're quite kind of um uh, thick concepts in the sense that there's a lot to them in repentance, there's a thinking element, an intellectual recognition of our sin, of its wrongness, of its sinfulness, but then also a kind of a feeling, a sorrow over that, not just, oh yeah, that's wrong, but actually a sorrow, a, a grief, a remorse, and a distaste for sin. And then also action, repentance also flows into action. It's not just that we recognize it's sinful and we feel it's sinful, actually we respond to that by turning away from it. And I think that all three of those are necessary to be uh, kind of truly biblical repentance. And sometimes genuine repentance happens and the change of action is a bit slower, but the change of action will always follow suit over time as that repentance is kind of worked through. And then the other side of the coin, because repentance is turning away from something, is faith. We turn to faith, which again, I think has three elements. There's a thinking element. There's a simple acknowledgement of the truth of uh, the gospel, and of course, standards revealed by him. There's our heart element that the heart actually, rather than being turned away from God, comes turned to God, a heart orientation towards God. An active thing, an active choice to seek to live his way. And in some ways, biblical faith uh, might be better understood or more easily understood is trust. It's a trusting in a promise. And the nuance of that in English for us is quite helpful. When you're trusting something, you're kind of holding on to it, you're putting your hopes in it, you're clinging on to it, which I think is a helpful way of conceiving it. We trust in the promise of God. That's what biblical faith in response to the offer of the promise of salvation looks like. Those two come together and that's what we call the, the moment of conversion, where there's a, a change in us or where we uh, change on the basis of the repentance and the faith that we move in. 
which leads us to the big concept of justification. Justification is where God declares that we are in a right legal standing before him, i.e. we are righteous. He sees us and treats us as if we've done everything that we should have done and nothing that we should not have done. And this is all possible because of what Christ has done. The justification is a legal declaration. It's God acting as a judge saying you are not guilty, but actually more than not guilty, you are righteous in a right legal standing. For us as English speakers, justification gets confusing because we use two different types of English words to translate one type of Greek word. And so we tend to not see that things are connected. And so there's a little table I've put there in the uh, notes that tries to explain this. So in Greek, we have this word group, the dikai words, dikaisune, dikaios, dikaioo, all of which are related. You can hear they sound the same. They've got the same starting letters. In English, we translate that both with the justification word group, justification, just to justify, and also the righteousness word group, righteousness, righteous. The problem, if you look at the table, is the empty box in the bottom right. There's no verb in the righteousness um, word group for this concept. So we talk about being justified or to justify, and we don't immediately make the link, oh, that means to be made righteous, because justification and righteousness can easily sound like different things to us. But the key thing to get is to justify someone is to declare them righteous. In some ways, it'd be helpful to make up a new verb like to righteous or to right-wise, some people say. You, you righteous someone and they are, are declared righteous. They uh, become righteous. And so amidst the complexity there, the key thing to get is the language of justification and the language of righteousness are the same thing. And recognising that can really help to understand this topic. Justification is controversial. There are different views on it. There are three main views on it. The kind of standard Protestant view is what I described in the opening definition there. It's a legal declaration. It's God acting as judge, declaring that we are righteous in this right legal standing before him. And that isn't an injustice because it's the work of Christ, which is the basis on which that is that declaration is made. Jesus pays the price for our sins. His perfect life is credited to our account. The Roman Catholic understanding is quite different, or at least the traditional Roman Catholic understanding. I think it might be a bit different now after Vatican II in the last century. But the traditional Roman Catholic understanding is that justification is not a legal declaration, but that righteousness is infused, is kind of put into a person. And that changes a person so they can more and more do the right thing, more and more live a righteous way. And in that way, they kind of make their way to a state of being acceptable to God. And so in Catholic theology, through baptism, through the sacraments, through faith, through good works, more and more grace is infused into you, which enables you to do the right things, which commend you to God, which is why there's the concept of purgatory. Because if you haven't done enough by the time you die, you need to keep doing some stuff or you need to uh, make up for the way you have fallen short in purgatory before you can actually get to eternity with God. So you see how it's a very different conception. It's not God as the judge who declares you are righteous. It's God gives you righteousness so you can do righteous stuff to try and make your way with God. And then the third perspective is what's called the new perspective on Paul, which you may have heard about, particularly from Tom Wright. He's quite well known as a writer who kind of presents this kind of understanding, which came up in scholarship kind of the last century. <clears throat> The new perspective is primarily about justification, and it sees justification, again, not as this legal declaration of you are righteous, but as being about covenant membership. So it's about being in the people of God, the group of people who are God's people and the group of people whom God will save. And the theory behind the new perspective on Paul is that historically in the Old Testament, the, the markers of being in that group, the thing it proved you were in the people of God, were the works of the law, particularly keeping the Sabbath, keeping the food laws and being circumcised if you're a guy. They were the things which are the boundary markers. They show you are in the group who are God's people who will be saved. And this reading of the New Testament says what changes with Jesus is it's no longer those things that are the boundary markers, but now the boundary marker is faith in Jesus. It's not food laws, circumcision, Sabbath that show you're in the people of God. Actually, it's faith in Jesus that show you're in the people of God. And therefore, salvation gets opened up to Gentiles because most Gentiles wouldn't be keeping the food laws, wouldn't be circumcised, all that kind of thing. 
So the new perspective in Paul justification is primarily about, well, how do the Gentiles experience salvation as well as the Jews? And it's through that change from those Jewish practices to actually faith in Jesus. Question becomes, of course, which is right? We need to think about how the Bible talks about justification. I think when you look at the Bible, uh, both Testaments, actually, justification is legal language. It's very much a courtroom idea. And it's about being in a right legal standing. You can see it in various places. You can see it in Luke 7. Jesus is talking to the crowds about John the Baptist. He explains who John the Baptist um, who it is, who he is, who he was, and uh, the people who've been baptised by John, we're told when all the crowd heard this, and the tax collectors too, they justified God. Literally, they declared God just. This is a legal declaration. This can't be they infused righteousness to God. It can't be they said, oh, God's in the people of God too. They justified God. They declared him righteous, i.e. God was righteous. He was just in what he did. Or you see it in Romans 8. Um, uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who's to condemn. Clearly the opposite of being justified is being condemned or having a charge brought against you. This is legal language, it's a courtroom kind of scene. And I think the key verse to understanding justification is Proverbs 17, 15, which says, he who justifies, who makes righteous the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous, are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So there's two types of people here, he says, who are acting completely out of line with how they should, an abomination to the Lord. One is if you justify, if you declare righteous, someone who's wicked. That's a, a huge miscarriage of justice. To be a judge in a courtroom and to say, yes, you're righteous, when actually the person is a wicked person is a complete miscarriage of justice. But so also is to condemn someone who is righteous, to say, no, you're guilty, even though actually they're in a right legal standing, even though they are righteous. This, I think, shows us this is uh, legal language. This is a, a courtroom scene. And so what should happen is that the righteous are justified, declared righteous, and the wicked are condemned, are not justified, are not righteous. What's striking, of course, is in the gospel, the opposite happens. In the gospel, it's we who are wicked, we who are sinners, who are justified. Which raises the question, has God not read Proverbs 17, 15? Is, God, is it a great miscarriage of justice when God justifies sinners in the gospel? Because you're meant to justify the righteous, not the wicked. And of course, the answer is no, it's not a great miscarriage of justice. There's a middle term that makes sense of this. Something that has to happen, and that, of course, is Jesus. The death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, him paying the price for our sins, is what makes it possible for God to justify, to declare righteous those who actually are unrighteous, who are sinners, who are wicked. And when we get to Romans, we'll see this very clearly. Romans 3 is really a defense of God. It is an explanation of the gospel and justification, but more than anything, it's a defense of God and that God is still just. He can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. How can that be? Because of Jesus. Jesus is the middle term who makes this not a miscarriage of justice, but actually a just way for God to act because he has taken the punishment. The uh, price that needed to be paid truly has been paid. One other thing we hear uh, just to talk about James, because you might be familiar, James talks in James 2 about being justified by works, which would seem to contradict everything we've kind of been saying about the initiative regarding salvation, all that kind of stuff. I'll go into, de into detail, but what's happening there is Paul, uh, James is using the language of justification in a different way. Paul is using justification as this legal declaration. James is using justification in the sense of proof that someone is already in a right legal standing. To be justified by works means to be shown to be righteous through works. And that's something we um, see elsewhere. You see it in Luke 10 the lawyer who is uh, testing Jesus, asking how do I inherit eternal life? We're told the reason he asked that is he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to prove to the people around him that he was a good guy. He was in a right legal standing with God. James is using the same language in the same way, the idea of proving that one is already in a right legal standing with God. So there's not a contradiction between Paul and James there, actually there's using the language in different ways to quite slightly different things. 
might be questions in that, but we'll come back to that just a moment because we'll just finish off with adoption. God adopts us as his children so that we can be secure in his love and become his heirs. God can so easily and rightly have stopped at justification. It's already far more than we deserve. There was no obligation for him to do that. He could have just kind of justified us, put into right legal standing, then sent us off to live our lives and try and cope on our own. And yet the amazing thing is, his love and mercy are so great and so deep, he then wants to invite us into relationship with him. He wants to adopt us as his children. And if you can look to the New Testament, all of the letters, all the authors of the letters in the New Testament talk about this in their different ways. It's a really key way the Bible talks about who we now are. And adoption in the ancient world was a, a legal reality, just as it is today that a, an adopted child became as much a child with the same rights as a biological child in the family. And there's this sense of us being brought in alongside Jesus, a brother of Jesus, as Romans 8 says, and sons and daughters of God, experiencing many blessings and responsibilities that come from that, which actually we'll get to and we'll see in Romans 8. But let's pause there and just see if there are any questions on um, any of this stuff from the doctrine of salvation. Then we've got a bit of a foundation from which we'll go to Romans. Lovely. Do feel free when we do Q&A later. If you have things on this, feel free to come back to that. That's not a problem. But that, that stuff and justification particularly should make Romans a lot easier. That's why I do it this way around. Hopefully that concept understand and we'll see that in uh, practice. And 